Hello and welcome to We Are History. And if you heard last week's episode, then uh, we have the same apology to make. Tell them what happened, Angela. Yeah, you may remember at the beginning of last week's episode, we put in a little apology about the sound quality because John and I both managed to screw up our recordings. And so we had to use the Zoom recording that we'd made. Um, and that's what we're having to do again for this episode because we'd recorded two episodes at the same time. Hopefully, by next week, you'll have back to our old standards. I'm putting away that yoghurt carton and the piece of string. It was a waste of time. <laughs> Just got all soggy yeah. in the Atlantic, didn't it, it John? It did. Yeah. All right, so enjoy the show <laughs> and uh, apologies for the sound. Welcome to We Are History with me, Angela Barnes. And me, John O'Farrell. John is going to be leading. Now, John, you made me read a book this week um, yes. about the like topic that we're talking about. I know, I, do you know, it's not that I didn't like the book. I like the writer and I like other stuff that he's done. Yeah. But I didn't enjoy, John, reading about the life of a certain Robert Maxwell. Robert Maxwell is back in the news. We hear about Ghislaine Maxwell, and I find myself yes. explaining to young people who Robert Maxwell was. And I thought, well, let's mm. do a podcast about him. And as it happens, John Preston has written a book about him. John Preston is a great writer. He did the book on Thorpe that we did our podcast The in- Very English Scandal, is it Yes, called? that was televised. Yeah. 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 And um, so when I saw he'd done a book about Maxwell, I thought, oh, I'd like to read that. That's very interesting mm. to me. And we could uh, do a podcast about it because it's an incredible story about a monster, let's be honest. Uh, yes. And, that's, and you like to read about nice people, don't you, Angela? I, you like, to, you know, I like to think that the world is and... full of nice people with, who are altruistic. And But I also yeah. live in the real world, John, so it's fine. But I think it's a funny thing with Robert Maxwell because I, I remember, obviously, when he, spoiler alert, died, um, yeah. and how he died, we'll get onto all that later. But I remember it, being in the news and obviously being a big thing. But I was really shocked to find out how long ago it was because in my head, it was much more recent. It was 91. So when he died, I think he died just before my 16th birthday. Okay. Yeah, in my head, I feel like he was a presence for much more of my life than he was, you know, in right, terms right. of being in the news. And obviously people still talk about him and, and his death was talked about for a long time afterwards yes. and stuff. But it really shocked me to go, God, did that really happen that long ago? And yeah, yeah. it did. I didn't um, really, I wasn't, I mean, he was a big figure in the 60s. He was a, an MP and he was a figure in the 70s. I didn't really become aware of him until I was a, a graduate and he bought the Daily Mirror. And then mm. he would not let you not be aware of him because he was on the front page every day. And Oh, yeah, it became his papers. own sort of personal. Yeah, it's a publicity uh, machine. There were, publicity there were TV machine, adverts, yeah. TV adverts, read the incredible life of Robert Maxwell and uh, an advert for Robert Maxwell, you know. So, yeah, we'll talk about that when we get on to it. But so we this will, week we're we talking will. about The Rise and Fall. And Fall is the See what title. you did there, John? That's the title of John Preston's book, which I have to say is a gripping uh, read, and I thoroughly mm. recommend it. The other thing I'll say is that um, with Succession coming back, that's another reason. I think there's a I lot have to of, say, John, I, yes. I only watched the first episode of Succession, and oh, I didn't okay. watch any more, purely because I found it too depressing. I know people so, love it. Yeah. But I, I just really, it's bad enough that these people do exist. I don't need them interfere, you know, sort of, I just feel like I don't need them encroaching on my leisure time. Do you so know what I mean? You, so when you watch The Sound of Music, you know, you skip the bits of the Nazis. <laughs> I, I do, I stop the before the Nazis singing. come. I do. Just the children singing is but, all you But want. the difference of that is, John, is that it's happened in the past. I can but deal with the past. History podcast, you know. Yeah, I could cope with the past, but with the, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, do, so, yeah, six, so I, I will go what, back to succession, but maybe in like great, 20 it's years. Great. So I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, Jesse Armstrong put the climax to series two on a luxury yacht because that's uh, mm. that's where this story will end. And all through the sort of uh, 80s when I started writing comedy and stuff, Maxwell and Murdoch were the great press baron rivals, but probably fair to say in the same way that Fulham think they're rivals to Chelsea. You know, Murdoch won out pretty well every time. Now, succession yeah. isn't based on <laughs> Maxwell. That was uh, hard for I you think... to say that, wasn't it, John? Sorry. I just Yeah, it was. It was. I, uh, it was I could see that would really hurt having to say that. Succession. You mean that Chelsea always win? Is that what you meant? Yes, yes. Well, yeah, that's enough. Okay. They are champions <laughs> of Europe. We got relegated. Leave it. <laughs> and Brentford got promoted. It gets worse. Um, <laughs> I know you don't care. Um, yeah, okay. 
yeah, I think Succession's got a touch of uh, a lot more of Murdoch in it than uh, Maxwell, except for the sons. You know, the sons in Maxwell's, the, the, the browbeaten sons is very much from the Maxwell story. Mm-hmm. But if you did Maxwell's story as fiction, you wouldn't believe it. Before I read this book, I just thought he was just a pantomime villain, an egotistical, lying, cheating bully. Millions had been fraudulently accumulated. and and mm-hmm. But of course, there's much more. I mean, he was all of those that. things. He was, but he was also a brilliant man and a man who could learn languages at the drop of a hat and the man who could memorize a science journal and talk about it obviously had a huge is, I brain. still I, I still I struggle with that but he was a brilliant man and I, I, I know what you mean you mean he was an intelligent man and and was able to but brilliant I'm not happy well, with I that. Mean, well in terms of the sense of no, not emotional intelligence clearly, I know what you mean in terms of ability to speak eight languages or however however many spoke I know what you say yeah and I agree an incredibly I intelligent man I just struggle <laughs> with with abusive men being called brilliant because they're clever okay. oh, absolutely. I, know I struggle what you mean. with I know that what you mean. I'm afraid he's a very um capable man at advancing yeah. himself An intelligent man i'll get you know because you can be intelligent and evil but can you be right. brilliant and evil that's different oh uh, okay oh well i'll give you that one <laughs> but you know he had an enormous capacity enormous energy enormous drive to advance robert maxwell at the expense of everyone else including his own including family. his own family kids, right kids and wife yeah i just really struggle with these men who not only were they bullies yeah you know in the but the it's almost he ticked all the bully boxes so hard that so much of it just gets glossed over. You know, the fact that he yeah. beat his children and that he, yeah. you know, but there's a bit in the book where essentially he rapes a woman and that's almost just sort of by the by. Know. You know, it's, it's, he's such, it's such an ogre, sense of yeah. absolute entitlement over particularly anyone that he sees as inferior to him, which is essentially everybody. But what's fascinating um, is that he keeps getting away with it. He gets away with yeah. it, he gets away with it, gets away with it, and he gets richer. He gets, well, he apparently gets richer and richer, but it's all well, sort of yeah. money being moved around between bank and bank. That's the thing Let's with the super the rich, isn't it? No one knows where the money is. That's the thing. Yeah. So you can tell people it exists and they'll believe you. If you owe the bank £100, it's your problem. If you owe the bank a billion pounds, it's their problem. Oh. Let's go back to the beginning, Angela. Yes. Born in a little village in rural uh, Czechoslovakia. The main employment in the village was a salt mine. All your hopes and dreams. Here's the twist. Mm. Being Jews, because he was born into an Orthodox Jewish family, they weren't even allowed to work in the salt mine. Right. So no sort of future in that village for young Robert Maxwell, was there? No. Or uh, Jan Hock, (coughs) as it was called back then. Um, Jan Ludwig Hock. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I think so. But he changed his name many times, uh, like four or five times by the time he was 23. 1939, war breaks out. Hungary, I think, nicked that bit of Czechoslovakia and the Nazis were rising in Europe. He's like, I'm out of here. He's 16 years old. He says goodbye to his family. Uh, He'd never see most of them again because, of course, they were Jewish in Central Europe. In Maxwell's version, he walked 275 miles to Budapest, living off the land and dodging the authorities. At 16. Yeah. In his cousin's version, they got the train. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I know. You know, the other thing we say right up front about Maxwell, he was a, an inveterate liar and uh, a man yeah. who would mythologize. An embellisher of stories. To nth degree. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, he said that he was captured and accused of being a spy and tortured, but as a spared execution because he was under 18. And then apparently he overpowered his one armed guard, jumped off the lor- lorry, and under a bridge, he found a gypsy woman who removed his handcuffs. So right. he told all this to, to Michael Parkinson on um, Desert Island Discs. No, and no, at no, at point, no point, Michael Parkinson goes, yeah, right. <laughs> Chilly Rick on. Um, <laughs> you have to understand back then, lots of bridges had gypsy ladies living underneath with a selection of lockpicks. That was very much the norm. <laughs> That's it. How the did the gypsy lady get the handcuffs off? I mean, I'm Michael, asking Mike, questions that only Robert Maxwell can answer, seeing as it's Mike, a story that probably lives in his head. He makes his way to uh, Marseille, having escaped, mm-hmm. and he volunteers for the French Foreign Legion, which is what you uh, what you did back then. But yep. of course, France France being overrun by the Germans, uh, he escapes from that and uh, that he was, gets to England and learns English. That was always in comics when I was growing up that you run away to join the French Foreign Legion. You never really hear about them now, do you? No, no. Still no, a thing? Don't. I don't know. Yeah, it probably is still a um, thing. I don't know. So... Yeah, he learns English in six weeks from a woman who ran a tobacconist shop in Sutton Coalfield, apparently, which doesn't make sense to me, John, because he'd end up talking like that, wouldn't he? <laughs> that would have been so Hello, different. I'm Robert Maxwell. That's a damned um, lie. Well, that's a lie. That's, I mean, I know before anyone writes in, I know what I did then was a Birmingham accent and Sutton Coalfield's not Birmingham, oh, so but big, it's all the same, isn't it? So, no, in fact, his accent was modelled on Churchill's speeches, which he listened to before he understood them. 
And um, <laughs> he had an extra sort of dollop of treacle. So his voice was very like this. And he sort of, he very said, plummy, damn lie and I will sue you. Yeah, that's how he spoke. Uh... So what Which is then? quite impressive, actually, though. So not only, I mean, he grew up speaking several languages, right? Um, yeah. Czech, Hungarian, German, Russian, French, later English, Yiddish, of course. Yeah. So he was obviously a multilinguist, but in, to pick up an accent at 16 is actually really hard to do. And yeah. most people do linguistics, like the, the, they call it the critical window of picking up an accent is oh, okay. around puberty, really. So if you learn a new language after puberty, even if you're immersed in that culture, or if you move to a new town or whatever, yeah. you won't pick up the accent unless wow. you do it very consciously. Oh, well, that's and, what and then, Which is obviously what he did. But it's still very difficult for a foreign ear to pick up a foreign accent. Really difficult. So, right. you know, it's no quite hint, amazing no what he was able that, to do, really. There was no hint that he sounded Czech or anything, you know. No, um, no. Or, or Ukrainian or wherever it ended up being part of Hungary. Um, so, yeah, so where were we? We're, we he's 17. So he's 17. He's in Britain. And, he, and he's in the, the Pioneer Corps, which was this uh, place they stuck all the foreigners. And um, yeah. the British uh, thanked him for his volunteering by sending him off to South Wales to break rocks. Not a very grateful way to treat uh, volunteers from um, occupied Central Europe. Yeah, and, um, but... and it was he was pretty did that for quite a long time. He was stuck out there. Wow, changed his Wales name to Breaking Rocks. Yeah, he changed his name to Ivan Du Maurier. Right, because he's just mixing with the locals in Wales. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's Ivan the Rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was the name of a popular brand of cigarettes was Du Maurier. So ah. Most of the war, he was in England, you know, or Wales, in the UK mm. anyway. Uh, 1944, he managed to get himself transferred to a British regiment. And then three weeks after D-Day, he got to northern France. I suppose he spoke German, so they thought he'd be useful, right? Yeah, yeah. He was slightly alarmed them when he demonstrated this by turning up in a Nazi uniform and said, you know, I could go undercover. It's like, whoa, it's a fucking Oh, Nazi take that off! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> by this time, he changed his name to Leslie Smith. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the fourth time he changed his name. The bank wrote to him and said, if you change his name once again, they're closing your account immediately. Oh, my goodness me. I tell you, as somebody who's currently um, changed their name by Depol, oh, yeah. as I have. So I, I am yeah. keeping my name professionally, but I've changed my name personally. And, um, oh, it's a ball eight, John. Oh, it is. So to do it like the six times banks. before you're 23, gee the whiz. banks. But to be fair, this would not be the biggest inconvenience that no. whatever would cause the banks. <laughs> <laughs> no. Not by a long chalk. So then he gets promoted to sergeant and apparently he does show great bravery and disregard for his own personal safety in in one battle. He disobeyed orders and ended up saving the lives of his platoon as a result by insisting on going back in, I think, to a raid that they'd sort of given up on. John Preston in this book, he does suggest that there's something in that story that's true, right? Even though it feels like it's all Maxwell's heroic stories. Yeah, but it is that disregarding authority and, and, and yeah. lives were saved. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean... However much he might have built it up or spun it, he was awarded the military cross by General Montgomery. Yeah, and there's a photograph of him receiving it because that does sound like, oh yeah, of course he got the military yeah. cross, but actually he did. And I, I do think, you know, I, I assume, knowing what I know about Robert Maxwell, that like you say, his sort of motivation for going back into that situation, I don't think was to particularly to rescue people as to elevate Robert Maxwell, right? Well, as the maybe, hero. But he did save some lives, apparently. So oh, yeah, I'll, give him, but I'll I mean, give him that one. Know, I'll give him that one. Because, but... Yeah, he saved, the, don't get me wrong, he saved the lives, but I'm sure it was to for him to be a hero was the, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He did see quite a lot of action and um, he killed a large number of Germans. But when a group of Germans mm. surrendered, because he, when he got promoted, you know, he was in charge of uh, sort of a small platoon and a group of mm. Germans surrendered. They all came out with their hands up and Maxwell shot them all dead. Jesus. And uh, he was surprised when all the young men under his command thought that was unfair. Yeah, if you've got surrendering soldiers, you take them yeah. as prisoners of war. You don't shoot yeah. them in the head, do yeah. you? Yeah. So he got some leave and he went on a motorbike to Paris. And there he met in the city of love. He met in Betty. the city of love. He, he met, met Betty. Betty. Poor Betty, was, uh, I, who would become his wife. Did you find John in the book, like Betty, the bits oh, of God. Betty's diaries where she's talking about their sex life? I had to sort of tune out a little oh. bit. No, that it turned was... me on, that stuff. Yeah. Oh, did it? Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> whatever floats your boat, John O'Farrell. <laughs> I jest, of course. The idea of Robert Maxwell on top of you, it's not, you know, it's not no. designed to you know, stimulate. Yeah. Um, they were married in March 44 and um, he returned to the army. He sent her a list of what would make a list of what made the this... perfect marriage. Did you do this, Angela? I Well, Matt did this to me, obviously. He yeah, sent me yeah. a list. Number one. We, we were getting married. He said, right, this is how you have a perfect marriage and uh, go on, John, you say what's on the list. Number one, don't nag. 
Oh, Number two, don't criticise unduly. There were six of these. I'm not going to read them all out. Just, but, it just um, makes me feel sick. It's just... You know, did you not do this? I thought everyone did it's this. It's that real thing of that person in a marriage, usually the man, yeah. who just... It's not about a marriage, is it? It's about how you serve me. It's about... Exactly. He's employed a maid is what he's done. He hasn't married. It's not a partnership, is it? It's This is how you yeah. serve me in our future together. Absolutely. So poor Betty was, um, you know, I mean, they were they were in love, I think, to start with, but uh, God, she had a pretty hard time. Oh, it, bloody hell, didn't through. she? It was one of nine children in uh, in growing up, and he yeah. had this ambition to replace his family. Because I should say, the day before he got that military cross, he learned that uh, his mother and one of his sisters had been murdered by the Nazis. He was a victim of the Holocaust in the sense that his yeah. family had uh, been wiped out. Well, he wanted to have nine children. Yeah, there's a, a theory about how he became. I mean, obviously, you know, something like that happens to you at a relatively young age. That is going to inform how you develop as a human being. Absolutely. Um, but also, I think it said he was his mother's favourite, wasn't it? I think his mother really molly coddled him, and he sort of, right. when she died, it obviously affected him very badly. But he also was sort of looking for that molly coddling, yeah. you know, expected yeah, that yes. treatment from everyone to be, every, you know, of the favourite yeah. child. Sort yeah. of, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So anyway, we're in post-war Berlin. And yeah. um, he gets himself a dog uh, from the breeder who'd supplied Hitler with his dog, uh, which his fellow officers were not wild about. <laughs> Do you know what Hitler's dog was called, Angela? Blondie. That's right. It was a massive Debbie yes. Harry fan. Hey, oh, you! I'll set him up. You knock him down, John. I bet we've done that joke in a previous one. We're getting to the point now where we're just repeating the same jokes. <laughs> in post-12 Berlin, Maxwell's in charge of public relations and the information services control press section. So... He starts a German language newspaper. Oh, there's a little note for later. And it's a great yeah. success. There's very little uh, information for the poor occupied Germans. I say poor occupied Germans. They did sort of mm. destroy Europe, but, you know, they're victims yeah. of Hitler as well. Maxwell is only 23 and he's sort of starting to demonstrate this genius for browbeating, bullying, bartering, haggling and getting his whatever Robert Maxwell wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's thinking, how can I make my millions? All those years he spent breaking rocks in South Wales, he spent time thinking of money making plans. And he meets someone, doesn't he, Angela? He does. He meets Ferdinand Springer, um, who, before the war, he'd published books by the world's leading scientists. And, yeah, and he's um, a German, yeah. It was a German, yeah. And obviously yeah. everything in 1945 is in flux. There's shortage of paper. And Maxwell sees this opportunity here yeah. to get yeah. rich. 63,000 books have been removed from Berlin to this big warehouse for safekeeping. And Maxwell secured... Worldwide distribution rights for these books. Yeah, yeah, because Germans um, at a time when Germans aren't allowed to send yeah. anything abroad. Yeah, these are science books. You know, books by you know uh, Einstein and all from, from all sorts of uh, really obscure science things. But you know, scientists around the world and universities around the world all want to copy these books. So there's a sitting market, you know, for these mm. things. And Maxwell realizes that there's nothing like this in Britain. So he, has, he organizes this huge convoy of trucks that arrive in London with all these books. It's not clear where he got the money to arrange all of this, you know. Um, yeah, at 23, wasn't he, as well, at the time? Yeah, it's, yeah there's, but, ra- um, there's railway carriages full of books, and they're all turning up in London, and he's getting warehouses to store them in. But, you know, later on, he would prove he's very good at borrowing money. Yeah, and, he um, obviously can sweet talk a bank or two, can't he? he? There's also a suggestion he got some money from MI5 while in Berlin. So he might, uh, he might have been operating, um, you know, as a bit of a spy. His yeah. file said he was a dashing fellow, looks like Clark Gable. You see, the Robert Maxwell that I've seen, it's not doing it for you, is it, Angela? I can't imagine it. But then we were all younger once, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, so he um, he, he demobbed, he set up office in London. Mm-hmm. Did you read that story about the dummy phone? I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. A dummy phone in his office, he would press a button, wouldn't he, to make it yeah. ring, uh, yeah. like a secret button. So he'd take a call during a meeting and then he'd speak a foreign language so just to make himself look important. No one on the other Whoever he was having a meeting with. No one on the other end, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah I might um, start doing that with my mobile. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> so by now he'd settled on the name Robert Maxwell. He thought, what can I call my building? I'll call it Maxwell House. This <laughs> <laughs> cafe was already taken. Well, um, the coffee maker's not too happy, apparently. Obviously, that already was a brand. But um, yeah. Yeah. But he, you know, he never bothered be... Robert Maxwell to nick things from people, did he? No, so... quite, quite. Yeah. So he appeared to be making a fortune publishing these scientific journals. And he was, he was sort of, you know, purported to be idealistic about the work he was doing, you know, about science and the future. And uh, the, the bomb at Hiroshima persuaded me that he was very, yeah, man, sort of a, the yeah. whole kind of nuclear race that was going on and stuff. And yeah, he was sort of interested yeah. in all that, wasn't he? And of course, just constantly borrowing money <coughs> on these businesses. 
he was constantly borrowing beyond his means, of course, switching loans from one company to the other. And in 1955, his creditors call in the official receiver, who said it was doubtful the company was at any time solvent. So, so he was just living, like just going it. loan to loan and winging it. Yeah, yeah. And then sort of uh, wow. uh, getting all these loans that he couldn't pay back and playing loans off against each other and using one loan to sort of secure the uh, capital to get another loan or whatever. Yeah. He reckoned he'd been picked on by the British establishment, of course. Um, well, that's just, it's always, you know, whenever someone gets found out, it's that they've been picked oh, on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. just to add insult to injury, he was told he only had four weeks to live. Yeah, he was told he had cancer, wasn't it? Liver, yeah, lung was it, cancer. I think? Lung, kid- lung no, lung, cancer. that's right. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, that section of the book is quite, yeah, his children had been brought in one by one to say goodbye yeah. to him and he was going under the knife and, and it turned out to be a completely false diagnosis. Yeah, we could get a second opinion, Robert. Oh, yeah, I thought Yeah. That. <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah. no, you're fine. Yeah. They said they, there was one shadow on the lung or something, but it was yeah. something really innocuous. And They did and remove half a lung, I think. Benign. They did remove yeah. half a yeah. But I think perhaps his brush with death made him more determined to ever to achieve his ambitions. You know, he was an incredibly yeah. energetic and psyched up sort of character. Couldn't sit in a taxi without shouting instructions at the oh driver the whole time. Can this you imagine? the way he spoke to drivers. and th- There was one incident, yeah. I think, later on where he was trying to get, it was a new driver, a new chauffeur he had, and he was yeah. trying to get somewhere and kept instructing him to go through red lights in London. And the driver was like, well, I can't do that. And in the end, he just yeah. got made the driver get out and drove the car himself and just left yeah. the driver on the side of the road. Yeah, and there's one time where he was done for uh, dangerous driving. He'd been driving at 90 miles an hour in his Rolls Royce while shaving in the mirror. It's like, yeah, you're not allowed to do this anymore. It's like health and safety gone mad. Gone mad, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, he always had this ambition to be a sort of English squire, and he identified this ruin near Oxford owned by the council. He didn't want to buy it. He said he'd pay for the repairs if the council let him rent it. So Oxford County Council were like, great, best, you know, you you do it up. Um, and, and so well, he yeah. in Headington Hall. And he said it was best the council best council house in the country. Best council house in the country is what he said. Poor Betty, duly produced nine children. And his family life sounded pretty grim, didn't it, Angela? Yeah, well, he, um, the children, he would make them give speeches at dinner. They had to, um, on Christmas Day, there's one bit where they described their Christmas Day and they would all have to get up and talk about their hopes for the future. And, and, and they stammered the, or stuttered. It's like, that's mental would, laziness, you know. Yeah, berate them and, and, and would physically beat them as well with a belt, the boys and the girls. Yeah. If they crossed him or showed inattentiveness or disrespect to him, he was a narcissist, a plain narcissistic bully. Yeah, yeah. and who, the, the, he, you know, Betty would give him half the turkey and everyone else had to share the rest. Like, he was a yeah. glutton as well. He was a glutton as well. So yeah. these poor kids. The eldest was actually tragically involved in a car accident. He spent seven years in a coma before mm. finally dying. And now Michael? Betty thought, Michael, yeah, Betty thought her husband never once visited his, unco- un- his unconscious son in the hospital. But mm. the chauffeur, you know, said that they often called in late at night when he was on the way back. But he never told his wife. That he'd gone never to told see his him. wife that he'd gone to see the son. I mean, that's a, what sort of marriage is that? Where you don't say, oh, I went to see our, you know, unconscious son. Never mentioned it. but uh, Yeah. Uh, and of course, he was having affairs all this time. And when Betty found out about one woman, she insisted he was moved out of Maxwell's office and he moved her to the New York office. Uh, um, but that wasn't far enough. So they moved she, her to Tibet. <laughs> yeah. It's just uh, it, this sort of, you, you read this a lot when you read sort of biographies of these, you know, significant men. And the way the women are talked about in their lives, like they're just, they're not people. They're just these no. women that come along and are used and then go. And then another one, they, she got moved to, you go, these are yeah. people with lives as big lives. as his. I know, I know. And, and we just sort of go, oh, and there's yeah, another yeah. one. And he had these affairs. And I'm like, this is, this is an indicator of, yeah, you know, royals and, and politicians that all sucked up to him. Just, they just look past the way that these men treated women. I hope it's changing because. Yeah. Yeah, it's I don't know. There'll be, that there'll, way. There'll, there'll be characters like this. It should be like a this. real but, signifier, shouldn't it, that someone's a yeah. woman? Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, you had things like Me Too come along and mm. that sort of behaviour was stopped. But here in New York, said John, uh, dropping this uh, in. The, 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 <laughs> Where the, are you, John? I'm in New York. But the... Um, <laughs> And theatre land. But uh, Scott Rudin has basically been sort of cancelled for just being a terrible bully. It's not, there's not specific incidents, it's not like a list of rapes or anything. 
Uh, he has just behaved appallingly to his staff and uh, some one uh, assistant committed suicide. But it sort of feels like a step beyond. It's sort of what you're talking about. We're saying you can't behave like that anymore. We're not going to put yeah. up. With it. Uh, so I hope we, uh, like you say, I hope we're moving forward on these things. Yeah. People who behave like monsters are going to get called out on it. Yeah, because it's not, it's pure narcissism. and There's just no need for it. It's always seen, wasn't it, that that was a strength. If you could yeah. put fear in people that then you were yeah. strong. When actually it's just... No, horrific. I, mean, the, I mean, what's terrible is how far he got and how powerful he became because yeah. he behaved like a supporting monster. I yeah, mean, uh, so I wonder at the end of uh, one dinner party in the 1950s, Maxwell announced, I've decided to become prime minister. Oh, and so it's like, well, which party? See, are you wouldn't your well, alarm bells yeah, be ringing then? Yeah. As soon as somebody said, I've decided to become prime minister, I'd be like, well, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I don't think I'll come to dinner party with you again. He goes, well, yeah. which party? Well, of course, I'm a conservative, but I'm not a member of the establishment, the British establishment. So I'm going to have to become Labour. So he got and again, there, John, that yeah. is a perfect example, isn't it, of how somebody's utterly self-serving. It's not totally about... Totally yeah. Yeah, it's not... What you believe uh, in. Re- remotely about what you believe in what you yeah. you know wanting to do some good wanting to make change it's pure narcissism you're not going to be a conservative because you you know you, you have to be labor in order to be elected it's just yeah i know yeah so anyway sorry so, i'll start it just, it just really upsets me this man thank you caller <laughs> <laughs> no no i get it i get it he's outrageous yeah. but that's why i think it's so interesting because it's not like we're talking about a loser we're talking about somebody who ordered through his life went from one success to apparently one success to another all the time yeah. borrowed money on on, on other people's uh, labors yeah captain robert maxwell as he uh, styled himself stood for labor in buckingham which doesn't sound like a very um labor seat no. uh it had been labor in 45 but he he, he lost it in 59 but in 64 when labor came to power uh with a tiny majority the labor won the seat so he was called up by the, he's an MP, something Robert Maxwell is yeah. MP. He was called up by the Jewish Chronicle who said how delighted they were that there was a new Jewish MP. And he said, I'm not Jewish. And he hung up. <laughs> he did, he yeah. would regularly deny his past, wouldn't he? And then, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then not when it suited him. It's, yeah, um... and then towards the end of his life, he became sort of uh, very interested in his, uh, his <clears throat> heritage. Yeah. But he had all these companies and he was constantly moving money around and loans between them all. But his main business was Pergamon Press, which was run out of Headington Hall in Oxford. And uh, John Preston says, you know, he did revolutionise scientific publishing in this country. And that could have just been his legacy had he not been a megalomaniac, fraudster and sociopath. Yes. Little thoughts, little thoughts, but <laughs> they create problems for those around you. Greed breeds greed. And and yeah. what could have been just a successful business it could have been an incredibly wealthy man and successful. Yeah. It's not enough, is it, for these people? It's not enough. They have to be yeah. the yeah. top of everything. So he's in, a, he's in the House of Commons, driving all the other MPs mad with boredom and irritation. Instead of, you know, uh, it doesn't wait to make his maiden speech, just gets, gets up and jumps up and down in every... Uh, well, the, the, he made his maiden speech and his first appearance in the House of Commons. That's not yeah. done, is it? That's no, not what you not do, but that's how self-important he was. Yeah, yeah. They put him in charge of the uh, House of Commons catering. And, just to uh, keep him it, out their way. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't... Uh, it, no, it was the books that were being cooked as well as the food is what uh, is uh, uh, the illusion. And uh, uh, he sold off the uh, incredible wine cellar to below, well below market value to an anonymous buyer. I wonder who that anonymous buyer was. <laughs> well, uh, suffice to say, any politicians visiting Headington Hall afterwards <laughs> might have recognised yeah. the wine served at yeah. dinner. He's always a lookout for next money making scam. And he, um, he uh, had this plan to um, sell encyclopedias in Australia. So he called up this Australian businessman, a newspaper man called Rupert Murdoch. Oh, Rupert, I've heard of him. Yeah, and Murdoch <laughs> was in awe of Maxwell at this point and agreed to spend a million Australian dollars on his books. They were going to become business partners uh, and uh, they were going to have lunch in London. And then Murdoch told someone his plan and the, guy, the other guy burst out laughing and went, don't go near that bloke. He's an <laughs> absolute con man and fraudster. And Murdoch cancelled the whole deal. And... Mm. Um, Poor Maxwell never never knew that he'd spend the rest of his life trying to chase Murdoch. Because Maxwell thought him and Murdoch were the same, didn't he? And like you say, they yeah. just were different leagues, really. I yeah, mean, they yeah, were obviously yeah. compared a lot and they were, you know. Murdoch never put himself all over the front page of his papers for a start. Well, he no. Was, he was about the business, not about the ego. Yeah, I mean, Murdoch's a, a megalomaniac ego, in a completely different way. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Maxwell failed to get the news of the world. Then Murdoch gets the sun in 69, a bit later. Mm-hmm. And so Maxwell's got nothing. He loses control of his beloved Pergamon Press. Uh, the locks were changed on the building next door and their shared basement is blocked out from getting under there to get access to all his papers. So this and is his big company next to where yeah, he lives. 
Yeah, and the Department of Trade said he's not a person who can be relied upon to exercise proper stewardship of a publicly quoted company. If only people had listened to that. We're in the late 60s. He's lost his business, his reputation. And the following year, he loses his seat in Parliament. So was it all over? The man that they nicknamed the bouncing check? Or would he bounce back, John? Become back. even more infamous and influential. Find out and... after this break. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the twenty twenty four general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a prime minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original no bullshit politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We're proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to We Are History. Uh, You probably heard an advert then for Robert Maxwell's latest Business fed- oh, no, sorry, that we're not in the 70s. In fact, the 70s, not a great time for Maxwell, were they, John? He stood for Parliament twice and lost in 74, defeated both, yep. both times. Murdoch, of course, owns The Sun by now, which becomes the best-selling paper in the country. Maxwell still has no newspapers. He's a press yeah. baron with no press. Yeah, in October um, 90, The Times is in trouble. Maxwell thinks, oh, I'm going to try and buy that. But no, guess who gets it? Outmaneuvered again by old Murdoch. Three times in Chelsea a row. Fulham all over again, John. It is Chelsea Fulham all over. You don't have to remind me. <laughs> He'd been ousted from Pergamon, but it's performing badly under its new management because they're not, you know, writing, submitting fraudulent accounts. And yes. um, so uh, he manages to wrest back control of it uh, using borrowed using funds. Using borrowed funds, of course, yeah. using borrowed funds. Yes. And then in 1984, his chance finally comes. What happens? With 80 ever? million pounds that he didn't actually have, John. But as we yeah. know, that doesn't That's matter when you're super rich. Yeah. He bought the Daily Mirror. The big rival to the Murdoch Sun. And of course, since the Sun had gone Tory, the only Labour supporting tabloid. Finally, at the age of 61, he's got a major newspaper. He couldn't be ignored. And Maxwell Murdoch were the two biggest players in Fleet Street. He's there. He's up there with Murdoch. And this is when I think I became aware of Maxwell. It was hard not to. Then suddenly he had his finger in every pie. He bought Oxford United. You know, clubs have sponsors on their shirts. You know what it said on Oxford United shirts? Go on. Maxwell. Oh, God. (laughs) It just said Maxwell. Just Maxwell. (laughs) Yeah, he tried to merge them with... Nobody noticed that he was a narcissist, John. I know. I mean, he had a company called Maxwell, but he didn't put, you know, Maxwell Communications. He just put Maxwell. Maxwell. And he tried to merge them with Reading and call them Thames Valley Royals, which is not a problem. (laughs) Football fans love that. They love having been merged with their local... Yeah, with their local rivals. Yeah, love it. And then he Um, tried to buy Manchester United, which, of course, Murdoch did later on, but he refused their owner's asking price. So uh, his ego was massive. They said he, he was couldn't... he was always in the mirror, wasn't he? I he, oh, I yeah. remember that from when I was younger. Like yeah, he but... was always in it, and he was on the adverts on telly for the mirror, and it was yeah yeah. He wasn't like a silent partner, no, was he? he wasn't uh, no, certainly not. It's, they said he couldn't see a spotlight without running into it. One of his Christmas cards was a big picture of him from his birthday party back in June, standing that. under a banner saying "Happy Birthday, Bob." And one of his I business mean... acquaintances says, "You can't do that, Bob." And he was like, "What?" He said, the thing about Christmas cards is they're not supposed to be about happy birthday, Bob. They're supposed to be about happy birthday, Jesus. <laughs> just, just no self-awareness, is there at no. all? He even tried to muscle in on Band-Aid, didn't he? On Live That's Aid. Right. Um, and their mission to Ethiopia. Tried to make it all about him. So Alistair Campbell yeah. at the time worked for The Mirror, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Um, he's embarrassed about what he wrote now. And he is embarrassed because he wrote, and obviously he's, you know, working for Maxwell. And he wrote, yeah. Starving Children was saved yesterday thanks to the intervention of Mirror publisher Robert Maxwell. Oh, my God. And then there's wow. a great bit in Bob Geldof's memoir, which I read recently. It's about how he quickly realised what Maxwell was about and uh, kept him at arm's length. But um, Yeah, he, he didn't yeah. care about starving children, did he? he no, saw, he cared about Robert he Maxwell. He saw a, a bandwagon. Yeah. I mean, the other book I've read about Maxwell, I should say this now, is uh, Roy Greenslade's book on him, which I've read uh. many years ago. Uh, and Greenslade was his editor at the Daily 
mirror. Yeah. And he talks about instructing him to fix the million pounds, spot the ball competition so that no one won the million pounds. He's basically instructing his editor to commit fraud. Yeah. The thing I remember most about that book, and this is 20 plus years since I read it, but that Greenslade remembers seeing Maxwell flawed by one particular accusation. He was always so good at going, that is an absolute lie and I shall sue you and that, everything. But this, there was one thing he was accused of and he stammered and stuttered. And I think it was something like, did you work for Mossad or something? I can't remember what the details were. Mm. But he appeared really hurt and upset and couldn't cope with this accusation. And Greenslade concluded that this is because it's the only accusation leveled against him that wasn't true. So everything else, everything else he was accused of is like, did you steal the pension funds? How dare you say hey, that? Because yeah. he was thinking and said, oh, yeah, I did. I better be really strong. But when it's something, he was accused of something he hadn't done. He didn't know how to cope with it. That's mad. When it's actually unjust, he yeah, couldn't exactly. react. Yeah. So obviously, Mirror goes strength to strength, right, John, with Robert Maxwell uh, at the helm? Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the mirror circulation drops half a million in a year. Pretty much wow. like everything he got involved in, he made it worse. So he really when, did, didn't he? Yet, yeah. yet people still kept giving him money. I, it I just know. makes no sense. When I was at Spit and Image, we did a sketch. Uh, I say we, I wasn't the one who wrote it, but it was, I was in the offices at the time. It was an inverted King Midas sketch in which everything Maxwell touched turned to shit. And we couldn't <laughs> say shit for some reason. So it was everything's turned everything's turned to four. <laughs> you know. um, but whenever you did a Maxwell sketch, and I did the sketch, and I did this on radio and TV, then lawyers would be all over it. And it would be like I almost bet. not worth doing for the amount it would cost the production company in legal fees to check it. So he would sue at the drop of a hat. He'd bully you into apologies. And we actually did a sketch of him singing, putting out the writs, you know, W-R-I-T-S. And ironically, <laughs> the lawyers were so worried that he would issue a writ about that, uh, listed all the people he sued. And we had to make sure we weren't at the end of that list. So that took loads of money and time. And that was, wow. that's how he worked, bullying people and suing them. He successfully sued Private Eye, who always take the piss out mm. of him, called him Captain Bob and the Bouncing Check. But he launched a one-off spoof of the magazine called Not Private Eye. Guess whether it was really funny. funny or not. Oh, what a great it was funny. Pun. It was oh, terrible. Brilliant. I remember it. It was on all the newsstands. I thought, this is shit. And of course it was. It was like, it was like a comic going, I hate this joke about me. I'm going to get up at the comedy store and tell jokes about them. Do you know what I mean? But it's also, like, bullies, it's like the Donald Trump thing, you know. Yes. Similar, people similar. who are narcissists and particularly that sort of weird right-wing ideology or, or yeah. just that kind of cannot haven't got a sense of humour. No, absolutely. About themselves and they cannot do a joke for, you know, which is why you end up with Donald Trump thinks it's funny to mock a disabled person or something because he hasn't got the capability or empathy or or anything to actually be funny. You know, right. They've got zero sense of humour. It fascinates me that, well, that's why they end up where money is so important to them because that's how they attract people because their personality doesn't. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. You're so emphatic there. You hit your I did. I hit my wedding ring on my glass. So you're drinking beer because it's the evening for you and I'm drinking tea because it's the afternoon for me. <laughs> Although Not I have fair. been drinking beer since the afternoon. Oh, so okay, fair right. enough. You're a married woman now. You can do what you want. So 1987. Right. 1987, yes. he launched the London Daily Paper. And I remember this very clearly because I just I was in London. I was active in politics. And we thought, great, there's going to be a Labour-supporting evening paper in London. The standard was right-wing rag uh, yep. in a Labour city. And we were like, great, there's going to be a newspaper set in the Labour agenda in, in when we're battling sort of the ones with Tories or whatever. At no but point at the, you were going, oh, I wish ooh, it wasn't Robert Maxwell, though. <laughs> I was at some level, but it's like you, know, yeah. you, you work with who you can work with. Yeah. So at the press conference announcing announcing it, he just says completely off the top of his head, this is going to be a 24-hour paper changing throughout the day and night. And the people what? sit next to him and go, what the fuck? How are we going to do that? Have you checked that we've got the presses for that, that we have the staff? People so you thought, the well, they'd just be constant new editions all day? All through 24 hours. And it was like a terrible like 24-hour rolling news, but on... Paper. On paper, yeah. And it's like, well, Amazing. yeah, there's not many paper sellers at three in the morning outside the tube station. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. uh, it was a terrible idea. The Evening Standard uh, launched the Evening News just to confuse everybody. So for a oh, while, London had three daily papers. Uh, but after five months, it closed down. It was like, oh, shit, there we go. And they had some good people on it. They had, you know, like Duncan Campbell and uh, I think even Alan Rusperger might have worked on it. Uh, everything he did went wrong, basically. I'm not going to go into details. There's lots of detail in the book about his spiralling debt problems and Maxwell oh, yeah. Communications owing £2.4 billion. Pounds See, November once you 90. start owing £2.4 billion, pounds, like numbers just stop meaning anything. It's exactly what you said before yeah. about you owe the bank £100, yeah. pounds, you, but £2.4 billion, well, yeah. 
Yeah. And Maxwell you know. was getting fatter and fatter. He was behaving more erratically. In the book, it did sort of insinuate that he had a kind of eating disorder, didn't it? Really? Yeah, that, yeah. Um, I mean, because of, of coming from such scarcity of as course, a child. Of up in poverty. But there was a yeah, side, He obviously the, had real issues with food. Yeah, there was an account of him having some sort of editor or something to dinner and the, the, the waiter or the butler serving this lamb off the onto the guest's plate first and maxwell just taking the food off his guest's plate and putting it in his mouth because he yeah. was like couldn't wait to have this sort of meat because he had a housekeeper i think wasn't it who sort of really watched what he ate and and sort of would lock the kitchen but then maxwell in the middle of the night would break the lock off the kitchen door and gorge himself on all the food yeah, yeah but it was God. like a child he was a child he, really like a did. spoiled he, petulant he child he did and he did completely regress i mean there was things like yeah he, Wiping his bottom on the towels and leaving the maids to clean the towels. Yeah. It's like bizarre behavior. I mean, just becoming into complete. Uh, Peter Jay said that uh, he wasn't amoral, he was sort of pre moral. He was like sort of from another world where there were no morals, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's hard so to he, know, isn't it? When he's doing things like wiping his ass on the towel and leaving it for someone else, you're like, is that yeah. just for sheer disrespect for other humans or is it just not functioning as a, yeah, you know, yeah. just not? Just being yeah, really self-loathing, um, self self-loathing, maybe. Yeah, yeah, or just really sort of childlike, almost, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we're into 1990 now, and is yes. he told his, he tells his wife his marriage is over, and he refused to explain gaps in the mirror finances to the senior staff, raising questions. All his children working for most of them, they were terrified. Yeah, on of and off, and I mean, he'd sack yeah. them at the drop of a hat, wouldn't yeah, he, and then right. re-employ them, and he and treated them gonna, terribly. They were, they, they weren't going to push back when he said the money's all there; it's in Liechtenstein or whatever. He bought the ailing New York Daily News. Uh, and he rang up Rupert Murdoch. He wanted to hear his reaction when he told him the news. And Murdoch yeah. just burst out laughing and put the phone down. I bet <laughs> like, he did. I bet so, he did. But then there's a recession as well. So with the creditors calling yeah. in their debts, it comes harder and harder for him to keep moving his debts around and his Smoke and Mirrors Act was falling apart. October 91, five UK banks selling their shares. Goldman Sachs sold their shares in Mirror Group newspapers and in, in Pergamon, whatever. Swiss mm-hmm. banks said they were going to alert the authorities of suspected breaches of the law Everything's closing. They're, they're coming for him, are they, John? It's all what closing you do? What, in. Where'd you go, Angela? What'd you do? Well, you get on your yacht, John. That's what, what I always do in these situations. I'll get on my <laughs> luxury, luxury yacht. yacht. <laughs> it wasn't a narrowboat, Angela. It wasn't a little narrowboat at Oxford. No. It was a big luxury billion pound yacht over in uh, Gibraltar. He had it. Yeah, the Lady Ghislaine. Lady Ghislaine named, named after his favourite his favorite daughter. Ghislaine, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell. Yeah, the daughter. The news. Yeah. Who and, in the um, book? I mean, this is, you know, I mean, it's no surprise that this is an incredibly dysfunctional family in yeah. many ways. And he would beat his children, but then he had a favourite, Ghislaine, who was the youngest and would. Yeah. But then it said that she had an eating disorder by the time she was three. Yeah. And she stood in front of her mum and said, Mummy, I exist. When she was like, yeah, half I three. Mean, it's like, wow. It's fucked up, man. Yeah. yeah. It is. The crew of the boat were like, oh, God, we weren't expecting this at all. They had no food for him, no preparations, and they knew. And I'm sure Maxwell takes that fine if he turns up somewhere and they, you know, don't have a load of food in. I'm sure he's fine with that. Yeah, and they were aware of his terrible temper, and they feared the worst. But guess what happened? He was nice to everybody. That must have scared them more, right? Than him just kicking them all. And yeah, Maxwell's being really nice. And so he 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 had a few days on the boat. He went to they went to Madeira and they sailed around the canal. Oh God, imagine just having a yacht. There, you could just go and get on it and just sail around I just, the deer. I don't, do you know what? I don't think I'd be. I don't think I'd like it, Angela. It's just that money that you're burning. Well, yeah, that's so, you prefer your little narrow boat in. Well, little narrow boat. So my my flight out to New York, right? It's like that the the company. It's in my contract. They fly me first class out to New York, but I booked it. I went online, and it was like premium economy, which is still perfectly fine, nice. Yeah, it's a, it was like eight hundred quid or something to go first class, and they're paying for it. It was six yeah. and a half grand. I'm, I mean, I'm not. I'm not making anyone spend six and a half grand to sit in a slightly bigger chair for eight hours. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, so I've just booked premium economy. They're going. People over here are going. Jonas, you're not paying for it. It's like I can't bear the, the waste. Of the it's excess. such waste. It's such, but these people that... just money doesn't mean anything, does it? Because they're borrowing it most of the time anyway. Also, I think it's, it's a bit. Ungr- it's a bit ungreen, isn't it, to have, to have all that space on a plane? So I went for the cheaper yeah. one. I hope you'll good think for you, I'm not John. Like Maxwell. I'm, I'm proud not, of I'm you. Not, I'm not Maxwell, am I? Tell me, I'm not yes. like Maxwell. Not in that respect, <laughs> <It's> a... <laughs> John. No. 
That's a bloody lion I'll sue. <laughs> um, so, but, so I wouldn't like a big luxury yacht. I like a little narrowboat. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it costs about the same as a car, if anyone's interested. <laughs> um, but anyway, he's got enough about my narrowboat. It's November the 5th. Things are closing around. Yes. He's supposed to be meeting the governor of the Bank of England. His sons are being interviewed by the Financial Times. At 6 a.m., his son's call is put through to the cabin, and there's no reply. Yeah. Uh, further calls not picked up. The crew starts concern that both the doors to his stateroom are locked well that's odd yeah finally at mid-morning they fetched the pass key and just found his crumpled dressing ground on the floor and that's when they searched the yacht and maxwell yeah. nowhere to be found on yeah. the yacht and they so, said they did several searches they even looked they, in drawers so i don't know what size the drawers would have had to be to for inside, robert yeah. maxwell to get in one but um but yeah, so I remember being on the tube and just seeing the front page of the Indian Standard and it's like Mas Maxwell disappears at sea. It was like, what the hell? Yeah. That was like such a surprising bit of news. And in the book, he cut straight to his body was found. But that was a good bit of, there was a lot of news in between of us going, what the hell? Has he disappeared? Has he done a runner? And then they yeah. find the body. Um, and that's how you saw news stories back then on a newspaper headline. It's like, extra, extra, read all about it. Maxwell disappears. It's like a movie. You know? <laughs> I remember thinking, what the fuck? Has he, has he he's just disappeared? Has he done a yeah. John Stone? I can House remember it faked... being on the news. I was, what, 15, yeah. 16. I yeah. remember watching it unfold. And it was. Yeah. Has he faked a suicide? Has he killed himself? What? Yeah. Um, the news was full of it. And then at the end of the day, the news comes that an aerial search crew has found this body and it was being hauled out of the water. And that must be quite a job. Yeah, um, well, it was by all accounts. The diver yeah. had to, uh, it, it described it in the book. I can't remember what they had to use in the Double end, but it was something. something. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, it was a helicopter some, was like, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I think there's like a special place. bag they tried to roll him into and that didn't work. Yeah. And they had to get yeah. like a big harness yeah. thing. That's right. Get and then the, 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 then the standard, they couldn't find a coffin big enough to put him in. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, all sorts of crazy theories were put about. Did he jump? Was he murdered by the Israeli Secret Service, which seems a bit unlikely since Israel gave him a virtual state funeral? Although, Was John, the, they would do, yes. wouldn't they? Oh, OK. Yeah. Oh, You're trying yeah. to cover it up. You know, just saying. Make too much effort the other way, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Was the body a double... Like Operation Mitzmeat. What's Operation, Operation Mitzmeat, John? We've done a podcast about that. Exactly. Uh, when a Welsh tramp was substituted for a body of a, of a British soldier. So, a British maybe, soldier. The, so maybe the body found um, was someone else. I mean, no one will ever know. Uh, but the, the things that convinced the captain that he had chosen to jump and taken his own life at this point of maximum crisis in his economic affairs mm. was A, the fact that he locked both doors to his stateroom. Why would he do that? Unless he didn't want mm. anyone finding he was gone until it was too late. But the insurance company, not wanting to pay out 20 million quid if it was suicide, cited yeah. the fact that he was so nice. <laughs> That's proof that he must have been planning beforehand. Jesus when it, oh, it can't have been an accident. He's never nice. He was nice. That's proof that he was trying to sort of uh, yeah, uh, make people that something was going on. There's quite a lot of theories. Because I know there's one theory about his hair colour because he dyed his hair black. Yeah. Quite famously yeah. and that his hair wasn't black when they recovered it and yeah you know there's lots of things about whether he drowned or not drowned because apparently you know there were certain organisms that they would expect to be present that weren't yeah. lots of sort of things yeah, I mean, but of nothing rushed... really could explain it, a... it could it yeah and it was a rushed um post-mortem because he wanted to be buried under sort of um orthodox jewish law it had to be really quickly and then five days know, isn't it yeah before sunset on the sabbath in israel and all that shit so yeah uh, no disrespect to orthodox jews but all that shit and uh, <laughs> so that increased the sense of conspiracy and cover-up i think does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. His obituaries, obviously, were all he was a larger than life character, which oh, yeah. just means so he's fat, a, right? Yeah. Um, one off force of nature, all of that, yeah. that you know, yeah. sort, of sort of ignoring the facts. Sort of yeah. And until the Independent came along, I actually wrote he was a liar, a cheat, and a bully. <laughs> well done, the Independent. Yeah, that was great because it was like, yes. Actually, I remember thinking at the time, yes, yes, you, you told it like it was. Sort of yeah. broke the 
broke the tradition of uh, obituaries, really. And just I hate all this, don't speak ill of the dead, you know, and you yeah. can't say that when they're dead. You go, you can yeah. if they were an arsehole. Yeah, yeah. You, it and doesn't this is all stop it... you having been a narcissistic, abusive, horrible yeah. bully just because you're dead, does it? This was before it all came out about the missing millions and they'd yes. stolen the money of the pensioners who worked for the Mirror. So this is like over the next mm. few weeks, it became apparent that he was a... There were millions not accounted for, right? Yeah. So the authorities come after his sons to try and find out what's happened to whatever was in the pension pot. And there's a great news footage of the doorbell at Kevin Maxwell's house being rung by the police uh, in the morning. And his wife sort of opens up the window and says, go away or we'll call the police. And they say, madam, we are the police. Yes, uh, she's like, ah, yeah, exactly. shit. Uh, it's great. It's great sort of comic timing from the copper. Madam, yeah. we are the police. It's the madam which does it, I think. But yeah, Kevin definitely. will be declared bankrupt. Kevin had debts of 406 million. Easy uh, done, John, isn't it? Easy know, done. You, you run up your credit card, you don't pay it off. You know, still yeah. Up. Biggest bankrupt in history. That's amazing. But, but, but that's the thing, really... is it how people are ever allowed to borrow that Well, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? Once you're super yeah. rich, you can borrow yeah, yeah. until kingdom come. Of a really long fraud trial, but Kevin and Ian were found not guilty. So, right. Uh, they played the rule that they were sort of bullied into it by their. Uh, I mean, it's hard to know, isn't it? At what point you go, well, they were obviously victims. All his children were victims well, of yeah. a, an abusive father, but it's hard to know also how much agency they had as well. Absolutely. Yeah, quite. Um, None of the family, I should say, believed he would ever commit suicide. That was the first thing Betty yeah. said. Ghislaine remains convinced to this day that he was murdered. Sorry. She set up. She set about restoring their family name, and I think that's been going pretty well for her. Actually. Oh, don't um, let's not go down that road, Ghislaine Maxwell. No, no. But um... he became this terrible supervillain from from the from the mirror going the man who saved the mirror to mm. oh the man who stole all our screwed us pensions. all over. Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty fast about turn. Now he's sort of you look back at this life of this monster and think how did he just keep getting away with it? How did he? Um, steal, lie, cheat, bully for so long when so we all everyone knew how appalling he was and yet people were willing to lend him money because they thought they could make a quick buck. They thought uh, exactly they were making yeah. money too, weren't they? So yeah. um so yeah, yeah so it sort of still remains a mystery, doesn't it, really, what happened yeah. to him? But I think he I think he committed suicide myself. That seems like the obvious uh, it seems like the, the things were closing in, weren't they? And yeah, I like the night he was too nice theory. I think that's that's mm. got a it's got a narrative about it. I think there was something in the book about how his arms were when they yeah. found him and his arms were above his head and it looked like there was sort of some muscle tear or something. It looked like he'd been holding on to something and lost well, his he, grip. Yeah, and there was some theories that that was... Or, well, yeah. exactly. There was a theory that that was, you know, yeah. him, that he'd fallen and grabbed on something. Yeah. But actually, I think if you do kill yourself, you don't necessarily, you know, it might take you a while to actually... You might yeah. hang there for a bit, mightn't you, before you let go. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that's what I think. Um, yeah. Peddington Hall is now leased by Oxford Brooks University School of Law. Ironically, yeah. students there have a little idea quite how many laws were broken in that building. Yeah, how ironic. And do you know what happened um, to the yacht, Angela? I do, John. It is now yeah. owned by one of the Murdochs. Ooh. Oh, what a, what a twist that is. Oh, so, yeah, what a twist in the they, they changed it. I'm not sure they knew when they bought it because its name had Apparently they didn't. No, the name so, had changed and they didn't find out till later that it was the old yeah. Lady Ghislaine. Yeah. So that's the life and times of Robert Maxwell. Read Fall by John Preston. Do read the book. It is an interesting read. I know I said, I just find it difficult reading about men like this, but... um, It's got some amazing stories in it. There's one story about this Japanese fascist that uh, goes to see the the queen with the son Ian and he prostrates himself on the floor and gives a high-pitched shriek and the queen's going, he can get up now. (laughs) It's all rather embarrassing. Some great little sort of anecdotal stories. That's what John Preston's so good at. He'll always do a detour for a great bit of uh, storytelling. Absolutely. So do, uh, yeah, do read the yeah. book. Give us five stars. On the old uh, iTunes or wherever yeah, you do a, your podding. Two- Follow us at We Are History Pod and do um, keep an eye out. Like we said in the last episode, we will be eventually doing some live shows, hopefully, if we can make that work. So that oh will God. be good to meet some of you. Yeah, great. In the meantime, catch you next week on We Are History. Thanks for yes, listening. Yes, we will. And see you next time. Bye. Bye.